you above everybody else, you know that Mr. McMahon always gets what he wants. From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Welcome to episode 58 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winston. And today, we're taking a look at the 21st century for the first time on Greetings from Allentown. They look at WWF Metal from March 3rd, 2001. I, I laugh because the whole jacked and metal thing, I never thought I would be covering one of these shows, but in examining it, it's a nice backdoor way for me to cover the early 2000s with these being one-hour shows that capture some of the Raw and some of the SmackDown from that week. There's so much to sort of remember from this time period. A lot of different storylines going on, a pretty loaded roster. And I wasn't exactly watching every single week at this time. As I recall, I was watching SmackDown more frequently than watching Raw because SmackDown was on free television, at least where I was. It always says check your local listings. I I always remembered it being on UPN, but I guess it was because hardly anybody watched UPN anyway, so you'd want to check your local listings to find out what channel that was. And I didn't have cable in my college dorm in early 2001, but mainly it was because on Monday nights I had a work-study job that primarily found me either out doing some audiovisual stuff in a classroom in one of the buildings or even if I wasn't I would be watching the TV show Boston Public which was in its first season and I'm not ashamed to say that I was watching something other than Raw during this time period because that show had some pretty hot storylines as well especially in that first season when David E. Kelly was just sort of burning right through them with school shooting angles and teachers having sex with students. By the way, Boston Public, not on DVD. It's certainly my favorite show that you can't get anywhere. And the reason why is there's music to license. They use Springsteen, they use Bob Dylan. It's kind of hard to get that on DVD. But I was able to get enough research in for this show that is in the lead-up to WrestleMania 17, or X7, but I refuse to call it X7 because that just sounds really, really dumb. And also right after the No Way Out pay-per-view in 2001, a terrific show that I never watched before until my research leading to this show, which included the three stages of hell match between Triple H and Stone Cold Steve Austin. First, real quick, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown. Give me a follow on Twitter, at gfallentownpod. 
rate and review on iTunes. I believe I asked last week or the week before. I should write this stuff down so I can remember when I said it. But you're probably listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed in association with Place to Be Nation. Go to placetobenation.com slash Amazon for all your Amazon purchases to support the Place to Be Nation pain-free, as I did earlier in the week, where I ordered a new little wind shear whatever whatever you call the big poofy thing on the microphone i ordered one of the little ones for my headset the very controversial headset that i used for the opening of episode 51 i think it was where you could just hear me popping my peas all all through that and then i did a sound test right before i made the purchase and it was still happening so i said you know what i have to i'm just going to invest the $5 and do that of which I had $3 in gift cards left, so didn't really cost me a whole lot there. So yes, rate and review on iTunes if you get a chance there. As for this past week, the Chaotic Wrestling Show, which I mentioned at the end of the last show, I think I did, their Cold Fury 17 show, their biggest show of the year, which you could definitely tell it was the biggest show of the year. If, if you brought somebody in from another planet or where, wherever and you said, I want to take you to this wrestling show, they would have been able to figure out that this was the biggest chaotic show of the year just kind of right away, I think. Getting there for me was not the easiest thing in the world because it was up in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is very close to the New Hampshire border. And I work in Quincy, Mass, and I could not work at home on that Friday. So I had to go to the office in Quincy and work until about 6.30 when I could then leave and drive to Haverhill, which with traffic ended up being an hour and 40 minutes. Now, granted, I did stop at Burger King, but that was because I've been to chaotic shows in the past and some of the venues have decent concessions where you can get like a hot dog or whatever, but some of them don't. So I didn't want to take any chances. So I stop and get like a Whopper or whatever. And it was a nice break because, you know, it's nearly a two hour freaking drive up to Haverhill. I'm like, geez, I hope I don't miss the first match. And then sure enough, I missed half of the first match with my boy Anthony Green there. But I did get in to catch the finish. And I had a seat reserved somewhere, but I didn't get to it until the intermission because. I was walking around trying to find it during the first two matches, and then then I ended up talking to Mike Crockett of the wrestling podcast about nothing from there until the intermission, where he was ripping on me for leaving these shows early to pick up my wife, because that's happened to me, I think, three or four times in the last year where I've got to leave the show at intermission to get my wife at the airport or something to that effect. And hilariously enough, he had to leave the show early at the end of intermission to go pick up his wife at the train station. <laughs> so <laughs> the tables were turned there and got to check in with Brian Malonis, friend of the show and also of the wrestling podcast about nothing. Although I joke that now that he's going big time in Ring of Honor, he'll probably just leave Crockett high and dry on that podcast and start doing a new show with Conrad Thompson called Chat Me Up about the Northeast Indies. Been told that my Conrad sounds a little too much like Brother Love, which is an interesting way for me to get it crossed up. I think, considering those two guys are 
on the same show, but uh, very good to talk to those guys. And it was a magnificent show at Cold Fury. And Malonis's match was interesting in that he had a, he was originally supposed to face Brick Mass Stone, as I had mentioned on last week's show, but Brick was injured, so they changed it around to have a Team Malonis versus Team Scotty Slade. Scotty Slade's a frequent tag partner of Brian Malonis, where they kind of drew their partners out of one of the one of the old school Royal Rumble things from like 1989, where like Slick and DiBiase would pull the numbers out of. And they were doing that bit that you remember on The Simpsons from the episode with all the Major League Baseball players and Mr. Burns' power plant ringers for the softball team. And th- this found Brian Malonis in the role of Ralph Wiggum. Pick me, pick me. I pick Ken Griffey Jr. Oh, jeez. Okay, I'll take Millhouse. Hey, Mr. Boggs, will you be on my team? You got yourself a player. Damn. All right, I'll take Lewis. I'll take Jose Canseco. Slade ended up with D.L. Hurst, Brett Domino, and Mikey Webb as his teammates. Good pro wrestlers, but smaller guys in comparison to both Malonis and his teammates, which were the three ECW legends brought in for this show. I knew Dreamer was going to be there. I I, I knew his picture was on the advertisements or whatever. But also Little Guido and Stevie Richards as well. And the, the number one thing I took out of Cold Fury was, may we all look as good as Stevie Richards when we are 46 years old? Because that guy looked really, really good for somebody his age. I'm like, how old is... I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, how old is Stevie Richards? Is he like 40? And then I remembered, no, that can't possibly be right because he was in ECW in 1996 and that would have made him 19 and it's just way too young. He's like, yeah, he's 46. But the most shocking thing from the match, because Stevie Richards is in such great shape, is early in the match they did a gummy bear spot. Don't, don't ask. I, I, I can't explain everything that went on. And a bunch of gummy bears ended up on the mat. And as he's just waiting on the apron, Richards just kind of popped in the ring for a second and grabbed a gummy bear or whatever and popped it in his mouth. I was like, wow, I thought a guy in that great a shape might be averse to having any any kind of sugary treats. But everybody looked good. It was a lot of fun. Dreamer did his... um, I don't remember if this was his usual spot or not, but I like to call it the Tommy Dreamer Great Muda spot where he takes somebody's drink at ringside and kind of spits the mist at a guy. I think it was water or Sprite in each case. And it had me thinking of booking a Tommy Dreamer versus Great Muda match where they just spit stuff at each other for 10 minutes. I think I would actually go for that. You might not, but at least... It would have me rolling. And it's a great main event between JT Dunn, who captured the Chaotic Heavyweight title from Ilya Markopoulos, which I had to look up his last name because I, I constantly just screw up Greek last names. I, I, have, I had a friend that I work with, uh, or I used to work with. He, he wisely left my employer in 2011. And I don't think I've ever called him by his last name because it's this complicated, like, long... 14 letter Greek name. So I think I just call him by his nickname, which is Lucky, which is much, much more sensible. Also happened to be the name of my sister's cat at the time. So whatever. So great show there. Always support independent wrestling when it comes to your town. 
Unfortunately, the next Chaotic show is up in Danvers, and I already have tickets for a different thing that day, a Red Sox-Orioles game. And yes, baseball season is coming, so get ready for the baseball references to be ramped up, at least outside of you know the usual, the Braves game preempted the second hour of WCW Saturday Night, that whole bit that I usually do, running that number. Is I'm not going to be doing a WCW show for at least a little while because my thought was with this being WrestleMania season, and I kind of fell into this accidentally, I kind of want to do at least a three-week arc of shows where I'm looking at stuff before a particular WrestleMania. This obviously, as I said, right before WrestleMania 17. Next week, I'll be covering a Superstars from March of 1990 in the build-up to WrestleMania 6. And I have not determined the show for two weeks from now, but I'm thinking that for episode 60, I may do a Monday Night Raw from 1993 in the lead-up to WrestleMania 9, but that is not final as of yet. There are a couple of other items out there, including a an episode of All-American Wrestling from the day of WrestleMania 1. So the advertisements there are pretty interesting. So these two shows here, well, I shouldn't say two shows because Metal and Jacked were pretty much the same thing. They were kind of run, you know, similar items. They were the successor to Shotgun Saturday Night, but one of them was more adult-oriented because with the content that the WWF was running during the Attitude Era, it's very hard for them to have a kid-friendly sort of show. That's what WWF Metal was supposed to be because it would air during the day on Saturday. So this is your successor kind of to superstars and challenge of the past. Jacked was more of an adult product, so they would not bleep out ass and all that sort of stuff. When you listen to like an Austin promo on this show and every other word gets dropped, they don't bleep it, but it's just sort of like, it sounds like that the audio is dropping out on him. The other interesting thing about these shows is taped before the Raws. So this was actually taped before the Phoenix, Arizona Raw the previous Monday. You'd often get some interesting matches on here, like tryout matches of guys that would become much, much bigger names later on. Including on this show, we have one Samoa Joe in a WWF ring in 2001 with blonde hair, which is quite a sight to see, and also a much smaller man at that time. He's probably weighing about 240, I would estimate. I didn't really listen to whatever the ring announcer said. But also, there are people on this show that I've never talked about before, so it keeps it kind of fresh. Is Christian taking on Grandmaster Sex A, Brian Christopher, as I said, uh, Samoa Joe, and he is taking on S.A. Rios, who is the Cal Ripken of the Metal and Jacked shows because he's literally always there. You can just pencil him in the lineup each week for these two shows, and he's going to put on a six-minute match, and he's going to do just fine. And then finally, there's a match featuring the European Champion Test taking on Al Fleming, who, you know, he, he, he had a career. He had kind of an interesting look as well, as I'll get to. The other interesting thing that, you know, looking at this time period and thinking about WWF in 2001, WCW is clearly on its way down, although at this time, 
in 2001, the thought was that they were going to be bought by that company that Eric Bischoff was backing and all that, and then it kind of fell apart on them at the end. There's competition between the two, but not really too much because there's such a wide gap by this point. But it's interesting to look at what the WWF was doing at this time. I was looking mainly at that March 3rd date. They did a house show in Springfield, Massachusetts, drawing 7191, which is a pretty good crowd for Springfield. I don't know what the capacity of that building is, but I don't think it's any more than about 10,000. So this is your card there. Grandmaster Sex A with Scotty Too Hottie pinned Albert as Scotty held Albert's legs down from the outside. So the Bobby Heenan, Rick Rude, Ultimate Warrior, WrestleMania 5 finish. Hardcore Holly pinned Raven with a modified Michinoku driver. WWF Women's Champion Ivory. Yes, she was the women's champion leading up before she would lose it to China at WrestleMania 17. Pinned Lita with a roll-up after Trish Stratus came ringside. Acolytes beat Bull Buchanan and the Good Father during the Right to Censors uh, reign of terror. Test pinned Val Venus. Big Show pinned Billy Gunn. William Regal pinned Steve Blackman with the Neckbreaker. Kane pinned Haku with a choke slam. This is during the Haku comeback, which has been nothing short of a delight watching these shows from the time period. Dudley Boys defeated Matt and Jeff Hardy and Takamichinoku and Shofunaki in an elimination match. And then finally, in our main event, Chris Jericho pinned Kurt Angle with the Lion's Salt after a DDT. And Jericho was the Intercontinental Champion at that time. So they're running pretty hot, and it's well-trod ground about how after WrestleMania 17, things fell off pretty much in a hurry with the Austin heel turn. But also, while there was a lot of hubris in what the WWF was doing as the one major company at that point, they didn't exactly have a lot of luck on their side, which might be karma paying them back for all the good fortune that they had had in the previous couple of years. So just in watching the stuff, things were really, really good at the top of the card, with Rock and Austin and that build to WrestleMania 17, which is another reason why I wanted to do this show because this is the start of those two guys interacting in the lead-up, but it's before everything was centered around that one Limp Biscuit song, but it was such a great you know build to that match. You have Vince doing Vince stuff where I just kind of wrote yuck in my notes with Trish Stratus and his daughter Stephanie and how Linda had walked out on him and that whole storyline that would lead to the Vince versus Shane match at 17. There is a bunch to cover here, so might as well just jump right into the show. Girl, you're my angel. You're my darling angel. Closer than my peeps you are to me, baby. Shorty, you're my angel. You're my darling Back in 2001, I was a lot less savvy about the history of music. There were a lot of things that I just did not know. Now, I was in an IHOP in Virginia, and they had the little music playing over the thing. It was so long ago, I was in the smoking section. That's how long ago this was. It was like a separate room where you could 
smoke. <laughs> it just seems crazy to think about that. But the song comes on in the IHOP, but it's actually Angel of the Morning by Juice Newton, which came out in 1968. And I just like picked my head up, like incredulous. I'm like, wait a minute, you mean Shaggy ripped this song off? Like, like I didn't know what the hell was going on. Uh, whatever. I, I was with the girl who thought that uh, it was King O Prussia, Pennsylvania, instead of King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. So, I think that's just kind of a, you know, that's kind of my version of that. Anyway, the show is hosted by Kevin Kelly of the ad that you hear on this show every single week and he is hosting alongside Dr. Tom Pritchard and I have to admit this is an announced team that I do not remember at all yeah I did not watch Jacked and Metal back in the day because I don't know what channel it was on this because you could tell by the little thing in the corner it appears to be a WB20 from Connecticut so I wouldn't have gotten that station that's too far away but the two of these guys, they, they tell us that the WrestleMania main event is set, Austin and The Rock. You're going to get a lot of talking about other stuff during these matches. So, so if you're interested in the European champion test taking on Al Fleming, you might be out of luck. Al Fleming, no relation to former Jeopardy host Art Fleming. These three people will compete today on Jeopardy. Here's the star of Jeopardy, Art Fleming. Back in the day, my father, who I picked up my love of game shows from without any question, he would do like the fake Jeopardy intro, but he would always screw up and he would always forget that it was Art Fleming who was the host. He would always say Art James, but Art James was a different game show host that hosted a lot of different shows in the 50s and 60s back when he was a younger man. Anyway, enough enough Jeopardy stuff here. Al Fleming taking on Tess. By the way, Al Fleming is uh, he was a mainstay in West Coast Independence and UPW and a few others. So he has a pretty detailed cage match page there, uh, kind of a who's who of the Western Indies. But he appears at least at this time in two thousand one that he bought all of his gear at the nails store because he's wearing an orange jumpsuit. Almost like it was left over from 92 when Nails was around. Which is funny because this match is being called by a man named Kevin Kelly who is not the Kevin Kelly who was Nails. Anyway, test. European champion, as I mentioned. This is something that he had won on a Raw leading up to this. He would lose it to Eddie Guerrero at WrestleMania 17 in a match that... Quite frankly, I did not remember from that show. There was a lot going on. A test versus Eddie Guerrero, not one of those things that really kind of stood out in that show. It's very hard to kind of stand up, you know, amongst all the other stuff that was going on. And my critique of Test, and I, I always liked him, and I always had a high hope for him from the moment he came in at the Motley Crew bodyguard gimmick and with the Stephanie wedding where he kind of got neutered there, but it's not like his career was over at that point. It's just that a lot of people saw that he wasn't even allowed to react to what was going on and how Stephanie left him at the altar. He was just kind of like, eh, yeah, whatever. He... Which kind of goes into his whole personality. My hope for him was that Test was going to be a better Kevin Nash or a better Diesel. It's kind of one of those things that I've had all through time. Like with Big Cass, 
now who is out injured with a knee injury. I always hope maybe he will be a better Kevin Nash or better Diesel, better version of that guy. Tess problem while he was perfectly fine as a big man pro wrestler did not really have the personality to pull off that sort of thing as Kelly and Pritchard are discussing the no way out pay-per-view as I said a fantastic show what was Test doing on that show well they had him stationed it looked like at WWF New York or something where he cut just kind of a bland promo I, I didn't even write down what he said because I don't even think it was even worth transcribing it's just a shame that you know he didn't really have you know much of a personality that he could have become what I want I wanted him to be that's the most important thing that pro wrestlers become what I want them to be (laughs) not necessarily because as I said you know I'm a pretty crappy booker Kelly and Pritchard they actually go in and explain something that when I watched the Raw and the SmackDown kind of stood out to me. It was like an elephant in the room. It's that the Triple H was not on Raw or SmackDown that week after No Way Out. And I was scratching my head because I'm like, hmm, you'd think that he would be there to follow up on that huge victory over Austin at the three stages of hell match at No Way Out. But the thought was, well, he's so battered and so bruised by that match that he can't he's not even going to be on the TVs this week so just keep him off. Austin obviously is there and he has a a bandage over his forehead because both guys ended up bleeding in that match. A a very rare example in the 21st century of double juice in a WWE match. So Tess starts out with some haymakers, stomps in the corner, clotheslines Fleming into the corner. He had actually won the European title from Regal, Stephen Regal on Raw. William Regal. I, I can never remember when they changed his name from Stephen to William. I don't think it really matters because he's just Regal to me. And then, uh, as I said, he would lose it to Eddie at 17. Back elbow, the Uncle Slam. I'm sorry, I'm only going to call the full Nelson Slam the Uncle Slam because I just remember the Patriot from 1997. Uh, doing that move they, they continue to talk about Triple H winning at No Way Out which I'll grant was kind of a huge deal for him I almost see that as like a next sort of breakthrough there because when he had won the title in 99 of course he did not beat Austin directly he beat Foley the next day after the SummerSlam 99 on the next Raw because Austin didn't feel that Triple H was on his level, so he would not lose at him directly. So it was kind of a big moment, even though the year 2000, he's the main guy. But Austin isn't there. So <laughs> it's kind of like he's got to get past Austin because Austin, even though he's not there, he's still kind of the top guy because people remember he's been the dominant guy for the previous couple of years. Fleming does get a little bit of a hot shot as he's standing on the outside of the ring on the apron by falling off the apron, clotheslining test on the top rope. But the European champion comes back with a short clothesline, but then misses a charge, not an SD Jones charge, but just a regular one. And Fleming goes up top with a high cross body, but is caught. And Test uh, then no-sells a bunch of right hands and it hits him with the running boot, which you've seen Big Cass do in more recent vintage in both NXT and on Raw. And the pump handle slam, again, not a, not a move that impresses me too much as a finisher, but at least he doesn't 
pretend to be doing the guy from behind like Road Dog used to do. That wins the match for him. And even though this metal show is supposed to be family-friendly and all that, we see clearly in the background as the finish is happening a guy holding up a giant sign that says, Blow me. So there's your WWF audience in 2001. There are signs freaking everywhere. And I have to admit, that is something I definitely do not miss. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar. They go to the 2001 version of what we would have known as the event center back in the 80s and 90s. And it's Jonathan Coachman who recently returned to WWE after a lengthy stint at ESPN. And he is wearing an XFL shirt, which is coming back after a lengthy stint on the sidelines, which, quite frankly, it should have stayed there. I mean, leave the memories alone. And he shows us some stills of No Way Out, mainly the Three Stages of Hell match and The Rock beating Kurt Angle, who was the champion going in. So you got to have Rock go over him to set up the Rock versus Austin match. Angle would end up in... This is kind of the thing. He would he would face Chris Benoit at WrestleMania 17. And this is the thing that's kind of forgotten with that show is some of the stuff does seem a little thrown together based on what I was watching. Like it seems like Kurt Angle and Benoit was kind of like, well, we we don't really have anything else for them to do, so we're going to put them together rather than, you know, any other match. We'll just send them out there to have a good wrestling match for 12 minutes, which for all my feelings about Benoit that I've made quite obvious over time, it was a very good match. The current angle, he's only a year and a half in to WWE at this point. I said that his year 2000 is as good of a first year as anybody has ever had. And he was just so good at the little nuances, maybe not to the regal sort of level with like facial expressions and all the little things that he would do, but he 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 just got it right from the go. How do I feel? How do you think I feel? I feel naked. I look in the mirror. And I see gold here, but I don't see gold here. But I guarantee one thing, I will again be the World Wrestling Federation champion because I am a true athlete, and that is true. Will Kurt Angle be able to stop The Rock from going to WrestleMania? Maybe this is just me, but that phrase drives me absolutely nutty, and they still use it to this day. Will Kurt Angle stop The Rock from going to WrestleMania? He's going to be on the friggin' card at WrestleMania anyway. We know this, okay? You put literally everybody in the company on the show. He's not stopping The Rock from going to WrestleMania. Unless you're referring to, is he going to put The Rock out? Is he going to injure him? Because he put him in the ankle lock on Raw and SmackDown trying to break his ankle or whatever. But stop it with this going to WrestleMania thing. You know, they have the thing with John Cena now with, oh, he's challenging everybody to go to WrestleMania because he doesn't have a match. Like, yeah, like they're going to leave John Cena off WrestleMania because God knows we've got to have everybody on the show. Of course, WWE has managed to waste John Cena at various WrestleManias dating back a couple of years. I know he was injured at 32 and was just there to help The Rock, but last year's mixed tag with The Miz was just 
complete nonsense there to allow him to propose to his girlfriend. It's like one step up from proposing on the Jumbotron, if you ask me. (laughs) Apologies to anybody who's proposed on the Jumbotron. It's just not a Pete-approved method of uh, doing things. If I had done it that way, I I would have definitely gotten a no from my wife. So yeah, I, I hate that phrase. I hate that going to WrestleMania phrase. But they do have a promotion here to win a trip to WrestleMania. WrestleMania. Thousands will gather to witness the spectacle. But only the select will have lunch with me in the middle of the ring. It's true. It's true. Enter and win the WrestleMania sweepstakes and you'll have lunch with WWF superstar Kurt Angle. Grand prize includes an all-expense paid trip for four to WrestleMania and WWF access in Houston, Texas. To enter, look for the Kurt Angle displays at your local Kmart or log on to WWF.com or BlueLight.com for your chance to have lunch at WrestleMania with Kurt Angle. And that is true. It is interesting that they're having a contest to win a lunch with one of the top heels in the company. Seems like you'd want a baby face in that spot, but, you know, that whole thing's just sort of dead by 2001. It would have been better for me to, you know, win that than watch WrestleMania 17 where I did, which was at Hooters by North Station in Boston. (laughs) And I just remember I was sitting by the front window of this. So, like, if you walked down the street, you could just see my back up against the window I just kind of kind of barely see what was going on it was not a huge screen tv but I, I could pick up what was going on and they had the audio piped in I, being there for a very long period of time I mean you, you gonna hang out in a hooters for four and a half hours but that's exactly what I did so it, it was what it was by that point I think the Boston University Wrestling Federation had sort of folded up shop and we weren't getting the university to pay for stuff anymore which is why we couldn't get a room at the Sports Depot in Alston to you know show our pay-per-views in a private setting like that going to Houston it, it's interesting that they chose that venue for the show because the Astrodome was not really being used for anything at that point other than maybe monster truck stuff because the Houston Oilers had long since moved to Tennessee, first going to Memphis and then Nashville the year after. The Houston Astros had moved out of the Astrodome and into what was called, hilariously, Enron Field because that company was going down in flames in 2001 amidst a million different scandals. It's now known as, I think, Minute Maid Park or something like that. They had just won their first World Series, so I'll be nice. And the city of Houston, I've been to one time in 2006 for a work thing where they had all the managers at the company that I worked, regional managers. And I'm the Boston manager, but they flew me from there to Houston. And I met with like all like the Western sort of people. I, I remember the guy who was the manager from Albuquerque was a real dick. I, like, I had to ride in the van with him from George Bush Intercontinental Airport. I like how the airport is the Intercontinental Airport. Like, I feel like the honky-tonk man should be the guy over the speaker welcoming you to the city of Houston. But anyway, Houston's an all-right city. Well, where I was was really on the outskirts. I really just should have sucked it up and rented a car. The only thing I really remember about that trip was they had a really nice health spa in that particular Marriott and I had kind of a Ric Flair moment d- during that. It's like I get in the hot tub and it's like these like three older women who are probably like 60 years old and I just start holding court like not not to pick them up or anything obviously but 
It was kind of like in Parks and Rec when Tom Haverford is trying to get sponsors for the Harvest Festival or whatever it was, and he's joking around with all the local businessmen in the hot tub, just kind of cracking wise for a little while. Now, what superpower would you rather have? Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Ed, go first. Uh, fly, I guess. Preston? Fly or invisible? But remember, when you turn invisible, you lose control of your bladder. Joe. <laughs> and I guess Houston's all right, but when it comes to cities in Texas, my power rankings would probably go something like Austin 1, San Antonio 2, and Fort Worth coming in at number 3. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. At this time in 2001, there was dissension within the Radicals faction, which is news to me going back and watching this because, honestly, I didn't know that they lasted all the way through 2000 because this is over a year after their famous entry into the WWF as a four-man unit appearing in the crowd on Raw in late January of 2000 just after the Royal Rumble. The memory kind of just goes hazy a little bit on these four guys. And, you know, in this way, when I think of Saturn, I just think of him as having the mop and the dress the entire time that he's in the WWF. With Eddie, I'm thinking of him with China almost right from the get-go. And I, I almost don't even think of him as one of the radicals. Dean Malenko seems like such an odd fit. I talked about a few episodes ago how people view Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson as a tag team in WWF as an extremely odd fit. I feel that way a little bit about Dean Malenko because he just seems so WCW to me that seeing him in a WWF ring is just really weird with him being a quote-unquote work-rate guy who can't really talk or anything like that. And then, of course, there's Benoit, which, you know, whatever. As Like I always say, we should be human beings first and pro wrestling fans second, which is why when you kill two people, you kind of forfeit the right to have people talk about your work in you know gushing fashion or anything like that. nobody's going to talk about juice simpson rushing for 275 against the patriots back at 73 or rushing for 2003 yards all we're going to talk about is all the stuff that happened in 94 or 95 and maybe the naked gun movies if we're in a good and giving mood Your uncle juice is a good man but the radicals i don't i don't really think of them as this unit that continued on but here they are and there's dissension between eddie guerrero and chris benoit coming out of the ic title match at no way out which was eddie and chris chris jericho who was the defending champion in x park x park god oh god almighty that that might be the worst example of my accent coming in or it's the fact that i'm recording this way too late at night <laughs> in the middle of having a bourbon but in any event 
as a rule, I don't really like four-way matches, especially for a title, because the psychology is just all screwed up. The one exception, the best use of the four-way match that I can remember in more recent history, because it seems to be something that's a more modern thing, is the four-way women's match at one of the NXT takeovers. I want to say it was February or so of 2015. It was the one where Sasha Banks won the title. It was Becky Lynch and Bailey and, of course, Charlotte as well. I thought that that was one of the best four-way matches that I've ever seen because they did it in such a way that you weren't really noticing the quote-unquote naps on the floor that are all too common in these matches. So Eddie and Chris, they had an issue stemming from that. Jericho ended up retaining in sort of miracle fashion, taking advantage of the tension between Eddie and Chris. And then they had to team up, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit, on Raw against X-Factor. And they show some footage of the match. And I'm very taken by the X-Pac sucks chance. It's like you hear about the term X-Pac heat for so long, and then you just kind of forget what it was and how people just grew to hate Sean Waltman after a while. I never hated him the same way other people did. His shtick did get a little tired with the whole crotch chops and all that. Also, I, I don't know if I've pointed this out earlier in the show. This particular Raw from the night after No Way Out was the last Jerry Lawler Raw before he quit in solidarity where they were going to fire his wife, the cat, who had just been taken by the right to censor group because Lawler had lost a match to Steven Richards on that pay-per-view so that's kind of an interesting footnote you see Paul Heyman show up on commentary the following Monday March 5th so things the wheels are spinning with regard to the death of ECW so in this match you get Benoit doing a very, very smart thing, and uh, you're not going to see me praise the man's brain that often, but he drags Eddie to the corner to make a tag, which I always wonder why in tag matches you don't see more of that when you kind of have chaos in the ring, where, you know, if your partner's in trouble, just drag him over to your side so you can then make a legal tag. But the match ends with Benoit missing a headbutt off the top rope which is like the complete opposite end of the spectrum it's like the dumbest possible move in all of wrestling it just hurts me to actually watch that move now and x-pac gets the pin on benoit and i'm not going to apologize for saying x-pac 18 different ways because it's a weird name to say anyway to get a locker room confrontation between Benoit and Eddie Guerrero and I have to admit it it is kind of tough to watch even beyond the obvious Benoit stuff and Eddie having passed away in 2005 it it just really is like Eddie is is a little bit loud in yelling at Benoit what gives you the right to come and talk to me like that is said huh I was hurt stop yelling at me and this goes into the SmackDown on Thursday where Benoit in his match, Eddie is on commentary and then he eventually goes in the ring and helps Benoit win the match and Benoit isn't really all that happy about it. So they kind of fade away around this point as is my recollection. Benoit goes off as a single before he hurts his neck later in 2001 part of the bad luck that i was talking about with the wwf eddie would have issues 
later into 2001 and would have to go away for a little while to just kind of get everything together. Dean Malenko's career is winding up around this point, and Saturn there didn't really seem to be too interested in doing a whole lot with, although they are promoting the hell out of his European title match coming up against Test on Sunday Night Heat, which I have to admit I did not really seek out that match. I just found it interesting that they were promoting that so heavily, Heat being on MTV at the time because Raw is on TNN at that particular point in time. The problem with the Radicals as a concept long-term with these four guys at least in my mind, is the best opponents for each of them seem to be each other. So having them in this stable together kind of takes away from that a little bit. They have very good chemistry if you pair the four of them with each other. Maybe Saturn a little bit less so, although as I recall, he had good matches with Benoit back in WCW. You feel like that maybe these guys should stand on their own rather than in a group. And the way they brought them in was certainly effective in terms of kind of putting the nail in WCW's coffin. Because while none of these guys were truly the top guy in WCW, Chris Benoit left as the world champion. But that notwithstanding, just the impact of the four of them leaving at the same time was you know much more than any one. But here's the thing is none of these guys are really great as talkers in my opinion there's there's not one guy who's the obvious lead of the group it's not going to be Malenko because he's not really much of one Saturn's more of a quiet guy Eddie was probably the most logical one but again you know I feel like he can stand on his own and he doesn't need these three other guys he's he's certainly the best promo in this but I, I do think that by himself, he'd, he'd be better off. This classic WrestleMania moment is proudly presented by Snickers Cruncher. Hungry? Crunch this. Uh-oh. Watch this. It's not over yet. He stays with the Iraqi flag. Austin tearing up the pieces. thing to remember about that Wrestlemania moment is that Hogan is out of WCW at that point because you know the Bash the Beach 2000 thing with Vince Russo that's the end of him there so just but anytime seeing Hulk Hogan footage on WWF television during the period between 1993 and his return in 2002 always kind of strikes me as interesting returning to that WrestleMania 7 moment where Hogan rips up the Iraqi flag because, you know, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And then the Sergeant Slaughter kicking out on three, which just really kind of strikes me as a dick move to do in the main event of WrestleMania. Right before that, there was an ad for the WrestleMania 17 program, which must be a real collector's item these days. Or or as Bob Euchre called it on WrestleMania 4, the WrestleMania <coughs> book. You know, I was just looking at a picture here in the uh, WrestleMania book. (laughs) I always thought it was funny that he called it the WrestleMania book. Playstimation's Nations, J.D. Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. 
On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryWrestling.com, and Scott Geek's Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. In 2001, the great Cal Ripken wrapped up his 20-year Major League Baseball career with the Baltimore Orioles. Two-time MVP in 1983 and 1991, Cal is generally credited with being one of the forces that saved baseball after the 1994 strike with his consecutive game streak that broke the unbreakable Lou Gehrig record of 2,130 consecutive games set back in the 20s and 30s. Cal would eventually extend that streak out to 2,632 games that ended near the end of the 1998 season. Plus, Cal is one of my favorite baseball players of all time. And S.A. Rios is a lot like Cal Ripken because... He appeared on what feels like 2,632 episodes of WWF Jacked and WWF Metal. I'll grant there were only 193 episodes of these suckers, but I'm just saying it feels that way. And he had a couple of different gimmick names. Aguila is one that is certainly remembered because he got a WrestleMania appearance at WrestleMania 14 out of it in a decent sort of sprint with Takamichinoku in a match where they got about five or six minutes. I believe it was the second match on the card for the WWF light heavyweight title. He kept that through the spring of 1998, where he then became Poppy Chulo, which means Pimp Daddy. I recall he had a match against Val Venus on a June 98 Raw that I thought was kind of funny that the Pimp Daddy was facing the porn star. But eventually, in the, the year 2000, as S.A. Rios, he would beat Gilberg for the light heavyweight title. So really not much of a win beating the joke jobber guy that they had at the time. He, he would hold on to it for about a month before losing it to Dean Malenko just in time for WrestleMania 2000. He would depart 
around the end of 2001. So another similarity between S.A. Rios and Cal Ripken. While Cal would fade off into the sunset and retirement and go into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2007, S.A. Rios would go to CMLL where he would become a mainstay for a very long time as Mr. Acula. <laughs> Much more formal titles down there, I guess. I'd say the key to his success again it's sort of like what I was saying about Sabu. It's his ability to work fast in an era where time was of the essence, where everything had to be go, 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 and there was less of a premium on psychology. And that's why you could pencil S.A. Rios, Aguila, whatever you want to call him, whatever gimmick name you want to use, pencil him into the lineup at shortstop or third base every single time, every single Saturday afternoon or evening for jacked or metal. And his opponent, on this occasion, what? His opponent from the Isle of Samoa, weighing 280 pounds, Samoa Joe. Uh? Yes, that's Samoa Joe. Don't make any mistake about it. This is not Samoan Joe from New Zealand from the 70s and 80s. This is the real thing. Although he looks a little bit different. He's announced at 280, but he looks noticeably smaller than you would know him years later. He's wearing long pants and not the shorts that we've become accustomed to. So you're wondering, how does he end up on this show facing S.A. Rios? Well, he comes at that time from the same place as Al Fleming, UPW. So that's how he ends up in this spot, considering that they're taping out in Arizona. It made sense to pull guys from there, and it was also somewhat affiliated with WWE as a kind of feeding ground territory at the time. It's one of my favorite things about Samoa Joe, and, and this is something that I didn't know until he did that interview with Jim Ross on his podcast back in 2015. I did not know that he was part of the opening ceremony of the 1984 Summer Olympics. So he started early on the stage, and <laughs> right at the age of five, as a matter of fact, and he was born March 17th, 1979, so he just turned 39 years old. And I always have kind of an emotional attachment to athletes who were born in the same year as me. Not not just, you know, NHL players or whatever, but, you know, wherever you are. If you're born in 1979, I'm always, I'm always rooting for you, especially now since there's really not as many of them left. Because Samoa Joe, I believe, is out injured. I have not watched much Raw lately, but I have not heard his name or anything like that but that 84 olympics thing sounds like the quote-unquote bullshit game that i like to play with my friends where i i think i may have mentioned this on a previous show but you make up a plausible fact about a celebrity that's not true that makes a person think that it's true but it, it, it can't be too outlandish like my my go-to is always that David Crosby owns a piece of a minor league baseball team, but that's fading because David Crosby is on Twitter and constantly complains about the fact that Spotify or Pandora or whatever doesn't pay, pay musical artists. So you kind of know that he doesn't have as much money and probably wouldn't be investing in a minor league baseball team. The best one of all time, I think, is the voice of Greetings from Allentown, Keith Langston, said that John Denver had a custom-made Muppet made for his appearance on The Muppet Show where they made his head and his hair look exactly like him, but it ended up not being used. See, that's plausible, 
but there's absolutely no way to check it. So I choose to believe that it's true, even though it's complete BS. So with Samoa Joe, it's more than just him being born in 1979 that I like about him. He, he must really love the city of Lowell, Massachusetts. And I say this because I've seen him perform twice in that city, and I'm sure he's been here previous to that with Ring of Honor and TNA, where you could make the argument that he's the best performer in the history of each of those companies. And you could probably say Brian Danielson in Ring of Honor or AJ Styles in TNA, but if you prefer bigger, dominant guys, you know, certainly the case can be made for Joe. But as for Lowell, Massachusetts, his last indie date before, well, he was already in NXT at the time in 2015, was at the Minor League Ballpark in August 2015. I went to that show. It was an excellent match between Samoa Joe and Warbeard Hansen, who coincidentally enough, I saw his last date in Chaotic Wrestling back in January of this year, and he is now in NXT. And then in 2016, in Lowell, at the Lowell Memorial Auditorium, site of Lost Smiles and so on, Joe won the NXT title from Finn Balor in rather surprising fashion because you don't expect anything to ever happen at a house show like that. Joe is also has blonde hair at this time, which is unfortunate, but goes to you know one of those 2001 things. I'm going to blame Eminem for that particular thing because his hair kind of has that M&M-y sort of vibe to it. And Joe works on the left arm early of Aguilar, who is very smooth. I wrote Aguilar again because I just am crossed up in my head between him and S.A. Rios. A snap power slam for two by S.A. Rios, which is actually pretty impressive because he's a rather small guy. And Joe, while I, I don't think he's the announced 280 pounds, still a pretty big guy. Kevin Kelly, not a lot on commentary on this show. But I found this particularly interesting. Just dropping in ticket info for the XFL in the middle of a match. Boy, the XFL is rolling. And for those of you who are lucky enough to live in XFL towns like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Orlando, or Las Vegas, you can purchase XFL individual game tickets right now by logging on to XFL.com. It's the centerpiece of all the great action. XFL.com. No offense, but I don't think anybody has ever considered themselves lucky to be living in the city of Orlando. All right, maybe somebody who's been signed to a WWE developmental contract and is working in NXT, perhaps. May I, I did kind of forget about that. Battle in the corner and overhead suplex by Joe. And we get to see kind of shades of what he would become. And then he hits a snap vertical suplex. I keep kept writing Aguila in my notes here instead of S.A. Rios. And that is very confusing. I don't know why I did that. He reverses a whip into a head scissors. That seemed to be a very common move around the turn of the century. The Instead of the straight up reverse Irish whip where they kind of you know, move their arms in such a way, and then you would do either a short clothesline, or in this case, S.A. Rios would go up for the head scissors, and a drop kick knocks Joe to the outside, and then we get a suicide dive over the top to the outside, a somersault, and uh, Joe is shaken on that one, and back in the ring, Joe goes for a powerbomb, but Rios kind of flips out of it and gets a DDT and then heads up top, hits the moonsault, 
And that's how he picks up the win there. Fun little match and interesting for a variety of different reasons. Back in 2001, as America in the pre-9-11 days of that year, when we were trying to figure out what to make of new President George W. Bush, there were three things you could count on. Death, taxes, and S.A. Rios appearing on Jacked in Metal. They soar higher, push themselves further, and punish their bodies harder. They are the risk-takers, throwing caution to the wind, jeopardizing their future for the moment. TLC Tables, Ladders, Chairs gives you an exclusive look at three of the greatest tag teams in the WWF in some of the most memorable matches in history. WWF Fanatic Series bringing you the best of the WWF. TLC Tables, Ladders, Chairs is featured this month only on Pay-Per-View. This Fanatic Series business is something that I do not remember at all. But there is a press release relating to this that's still on WWE.com from September of 2000. It kind of outlines what it's going to be, a monthly series. There was one covering The Rock, the People's Champ, hosted by Jonathan Coachman. So that these little quick one hour, maybe hour and a half things that they would sell for a suggested price of $9.99. Kind of like the old hot ticket stuff from 1991 WrestleMania History and Heroes Hulk Hogan a real American story which could have come out at a worse time with the whole steroid thing going on surprised that you know nobody has posted that to a YouTube or anything but then again I haven't known to look because I had no recollection of the thing that one on TLC matches and then they do a little ad asking for people to sort of call their cable providers to get TNN. This is important to remember that back in 2000, when they switched from the USA Network to the National Network, as TNN was known at the time, there was a reduction in the number of homes that Raw was going to be available in. So that was a real risk. But I think it's also a function of when you're a publicly traded company, you have to do what the shareholders want. And I know that the McMahons have absolute control because of the classes of shares and that sort of thing. But if TNN is offering that much more money than USA, there's going to be a pressure as a public company not to turn down all that money, even if it's not the best thing for the company in the long term. Though actually it's funny because when it was the Nashville Network and it had been around since I think 1983, oddly enough, up at Massachusetts in the early days of when I had cable in my house back around 1985, I remember that channel actually being on my cable system. And I say odd because country music in New England is not something I would really associate with each other. I mean, we, we have New Hampshire and Maine. But, you know, in, in the Boston area, you know, country music, I guess, is bigger now than it was then. I just remember it was one of those channels, I think it was in the very high numbers, that I would really never watch. Except when I was mining my VHS tapes from my YouTube account, trying to find content, I happened to cross a jingle for the Nashville Network from 1986. <music>
Back in the 80s, we had enough time in our lives to do 30-second bumpers for cable channels that hardly anybody watched. It's just <laughs> whatever. So next, they review the ongoing saga of Trish Stratus and Vince McMahon. And, oh boy, to put this all into perspective here, this, this was a bit yucky for my taste here. But, you know, this is kind of one of the peaks of evil Vince McMahon, sort of evil for no reason, as he's pimping the XFL at this time. He's also doing a thing where he is making out with Trish Stratus on a weekly basis. And I had mentioned a few episodes ago how Jesse Ventura kind of triggered this with a remark back in 1989 saying, Vince, you will never have women lusting after your body like women do for me. And Vince continued to think about that for years and years, over a decade, and it would lead directly to this storyline. I like to think of Greetings from Allentown as like a one long arc where I talk about Jesse a few episodes before and then I get to the thing that it triggered a couple of episodes later. I'm trying to be thoughtful in that way. And as you'll recall, Stephanie McMahon, very, very much a younger woman at that point in time, is very concerned about Trisha's influence upon her father because Vince had pushed Linda McMahon out the door, told her to walk away, saying that she only loves my money, my sports cars, the plane, all that sort of stuff. The plane, boss, the plane. Out of this, we get Linda McMahon, the woman who heads the Small Business Administration, which I'm sure was an appointment that was made on the up and up, just like everything else in this administration, it seems. She's committed to an institution. So Vince just starts running wild, although mostly this is in the lead-up to WrestleMania X7. But that I have to admit, a lot of times they would make Linda McMahon talk in the ring. I remember WrestleMania 2000, how she brought back Mick Foley, and she would be in his corner. But they did play to her strengths for once because she is very good at sitting in a chair and staring blankly ahead. That's... That's what she does best, and I think that they probably should have kept her doing that. But because she was mentally incompetent, quote-unquote, Vince was put back in charge, and Stephanie and Trish were having a little battle about who Daddy's little girl was. Just kind of... Uh, <laughs> this Vince McMahon is so emotionally disturbed, and this is kind of a glimpse into the psychosis of this man's soul. After all, he did an interview where he talked about stuffing crushed leaves into somebody's vagina, okay? This is not a normal human being, so you're not going to get normal sort of storylines that you might have been looking for in your wrestling. But this leads to a Stephanie McMahon Helmsley, because she still had the Helmsley on the back end of her name there, versus Trish Stratus at No Way Out, and I am shocked to report that that match was actually decent. This was not Stephanie McMahon squashing Brie Bella at SummerSlam 2014. It was actually pretty good for a while and only enhanced by the presence of Mr. One, William Regal, who basically makes anything better when he is a part of it. He added so much to this angle because he is backstage with Vince and they review this where Vince says to him, I trust 
that you will know what to do. <laughs> Cut to Regal as Vince leaves the room like, wait, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> He's completely unsure. So he comes down at the end of the Steph-Trish match and kind of middles it where he <laughs> sets up Trish to get the victory, but the pin is near the ropes, and then he changes his mind at the last second and puts Steph's foot on the ropes and eventually gives the neckbreaker to Trish, and Stephanie picks up the win. Surprise, surprise, but I'm not going to be too cynical about all that. You know, Stephanie goes over, ha, 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 I can't believe it. So on Raw, Vince is very mad about this. So he has set up a mixed tag match for the Raw the next night, which would feature Vince and Trish against Stephanie and Regal. And there are some real gross feces stuff here. And you can't blame Vince Russo for this because he is long gone at that point in time. So you can't play, you can't blame him in any sort of way because Vince is walking around with this mop bucket that is supposed to have feces in it. And he brings it to the ring. He ends up in the ring with Stephanie. And eventually, you know, he pulls Trish into the ring where she goes ass over tea kettle. And it ends up with Regal giving her the neck breaker and then feces being dumped on Trish Stratus <laughs> as Vince and Stephanie said, oh, she's been my little girl all along. Uh, these Vince family storylines, while entertaining at the time, just went to a point where they were a little crude and disgusting. And as I recall... One of the worst angle, I, I don't know if it was the worst angle or worst feud or most disgusting promotional tactic, one of those Wrestling Observer Awards that I just sort of roll my eyes at. I believe the winner for 2003, so two years after this, is that there are too many McMahons on the product, but that was a function of that being the case from the year, really, 1999 onward. And this is a part of that. And looking back at this, I mean, Vince, how evil he is, he's approaching that Jake Roberts 1991 level. But here's the thing, is that Jake could be evil without the use of props like feces and all this other stuff. Yeah, it, Vince is good. It's nice to see Regal in sort of a top spot there. But I really don't need simulated feces being poured over some poor woman. Your mother loves my money. Your mother loves the mansions. Your mother loves all the sports cars. Your mother loves the luxury yacht. She loves the airplane. Your mother loves all the jewelry. Your mother loves the good life. That's what she loves. Linda McMahon, the CEO of the World Wrestling Federation, has been deemed mentally incompetent. Well, Trish. Mr. McMahon. Uh... something trash that's something that uh, I do real well is take charge nothing's going on damn it we're just friends just friends Deeper the money you could make the spectacle on pay-per-view William that's brilliant thank you I'm confident you'll know what to do
And now for something completely different. A WrestleMania ad that's a little overwrought, I know, surprising, runs about a minute long. A couple strange things stood out to me. There was a woman in a full burqa watching wrestling on television, which is kind of a weird image. I I don't think the Taliban allowed women to watch professional wrestling if they're not allowing them to like drive or really do anything i don't think that they're allowing them to sit down and watch the rock versus kurt angle or anything like that but immediately because it's the year 2001 as i mentioned earlier there's no hogan in any of the wrestlemania highlights that appear there which you know now they've had seven WrestleManias since Hogan was at his last one, which was WrestleMania 9. So there is enough footage there, but there is also no Bret Hart as well. So things have just completely moved on. It feels like a completely new era in the World Wrestling Federation. However, I should note, the sponsor of WrestleMania 17 was Snickers, or more accurately, Snickers Cruncher, which I don't know if they have that still. I guess a crunchier version of a Snickers, as if, as if, like, you have a Snickers. Like, hmm, we really need to improve upon this thing with chocolate and caramel and all that stuff. There's really no need to do that. I mean, if, if you want to crunch, go get, go get another candy bar, okay? It's like you have to corner the market on crunchy candy bars, but hey... Round of applause for Snickers for getting the fabulous Moolah's name off that battle royal. They're complaining to WWE. I wish sponsors like that would be more vigilant for that sort of thing, particularly when you have somebody as... I, I, don't, I hate to use the word tone-deaf as Vince McMahon, but truly, it is a tone-deaf decision to use Moolah's name in that context, given, you know, all the controversies of her life. There's a very good reason why the Mae Young Classic was called that instead of anything to do with Moolah because of her role in basically stunting women's wrestling in the United States for at least three decades. Thank you, Snickers, for forcing WWE to do the right thing. And also for giving us what may have been the best day of people's lives, or at least the best show in WWE history with WrestleMania 17. They go into a review package of The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, but mainly we start with The Rock winning the WWF title from Kurt Angle at No Way Out. And in watching that match, it, it just reminded me that The Rock seems a little bit underrated as a professional wrestler because all the focus is on some of the other things, how big of a star he became, his promos, things like that. But he he could keep up with guys like Kurt Angle and everybody else. So he, he never looked embarrassed in there once he got past his green phase the first year that he was in the WWF. And also, he was very professional at all times. He he would job to absolutely everybody. He was willing to do business. Maybe not Billy Gunn in 1999, but that's a whole other story. 
And the story that I've heard is that the reason why he never had a match with Shawn Michaels, I guess, later on in 2002 or even after that is the fact that (laughs) The Rock felt that Shawn Michaels was a bit of a dick to him back in 1997 and kind of held a grudge. And I can't say that I blame him. The only problem with The Rock, speaking of the whole concept of being a tick, is sometimes his promos could bury the other guy a little bit. I'm thinking of Billy Gunn, but I kind of forgive him for that. Not because I hate Billy Gunn or anything like that. I and mean, He was certainly overpushed at that time. It's just that when, you, when you're tearing down your opponents, the whole idea is to build up your opponent so that you could then beat them, so that it would then mean more when it happens. So anyway, the Austin and Rock dynamic leading up to WrestleMania 17 is very fascinating because it is a babyface versus babyface match. It's the first time they've tried it since WrestleMania 12 in a main event because the Iron Man match between Brett and Sean. Before that, you had Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 6. This is not something you see very often. And what they're doing is they are defending each other and having each other's backs in order to make sure the other guy makes it to the match healthy and all that. As long as you're going to WrestleMania as the WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin advice to you is just to stay healthy. Sound advice by Austin there, one that really is sort of timeless. And even now with WrestleMania 34 and questions about AJ Styles, although he's apparently going to be good to go for WrestleMania against Shinsuke Nakamura. Yeah, just just stay healthy before the biggest show of the year, before you get your big payday. It's probably a good idea. You know, he had to use the going to WrestleMania phrase that, that I hate so much. But The Rock tells Austin, who's about to like leave after he imparts those pearls of wisdom, to stick around for a little bit because he's got some advice of his own. The Rock appreciates your advice. Stone Cold, The Rock has some advice of his own. Oh boy. The Rock has two words of advice for you. Look out, baby, I hear I come. Simply put, get ready. Later on that Raw, Angle puts Rock in the ankle lock, and then Austin runs down to save The Rock, and then you have. The Rock kind of coming up on Austin from behind, but nothing really happens, which is very reminiscent of the Hogan-Warrior dynamic at WrestleMania Six. By the way, Austin's 316 shirts at this time, the font that he was using, I didn't particularly care for that font. I'm not saying they have to go back to the 96-97 one, although I think even though it had only been five years or so, I think a retro design would have worked for him in that case, but... Just seeing him in that Austin 316 shirt, it's kind of a, I don't know, it just bugs me. It's really kind of a pain in my ass. <laughs> I love how they're fending off Albert as well. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, the rocket Austin, like, here comes Albert. Like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. But, yeah, very much like the Hogan Warrior build versus 
Brett and Sean, their build to me was more just them appearing on tech TV every week, winning matches with Sean looking a little bit better in winning his matches, which is, I think, what they were going for since Sean was going to win the title at WrestleMania. Now, SmackDown was the B show, as it always is, except for maybe the brief period in the early 2000s that everybody loves. The episode of SmackDown from that week from March 1st, 2001, is one hell of a show. I mean, you tell me the two main matches on there are Steve Austin versus Kurt Angle. Granted, this is well, you know, this is in advance of their bigger feud later in 2001 with SummerSlam, the post-9-11 stuff, all that. Still a very good TV match there. And William Regal against The Rock. It's like, yes. Two of my absolute favorite talkers ever. Two of my absolute favorite pro wrestlers ever get together. So that's a very good episode of SmackDown if you're ever looking to kill 80 minutes or whatever. And they show a clip of the Angle-Austin match. As I said, a SummerSlam preview of sorts. And Angle gets a front face lock on Austin, which he uses as a rest hold. Kind of a... Uh, turn-of-the-century twist on the old reverse chin lock move that I feel like was a rest hold for so many years, uh, especially in the 80s, seeing them. And Angle would put his feet on the ropes to gain leverage for it, so he is getting a little bit of heat as part of the rest hold segment. Austin then fires up, and you're not going to believe this, but he hits a Luthez press. <laughs> I think Austin overdid that move a little bit. It's not quite to the level of Dean Ambrose and his cockamamie fall into the ropes and, you know, weird lariat thing that he would do, but I think Austin did the Thez press. By the way, I don't think I've ever seen Luthez do a Thez press, so I think I have to go back into the archive and actually see this and how, how this may have actually gotten named. I'm sure that there's a very good reason Luthez probably won one of his NWA titles in that fashion. It was actually Tommy Rich used the Thez Press to win his NWA title over Harley Race. Does the forearm thing. I always liked the way Austin would drop that forearm on a guy. It would it would look somehow he would make it look a little bit more uh, oomph behind it. And Austin, the other thing, a lot of people have commented on this and you know, I have my thing with the T-shirt, but at this time, Austin has a second gigantic knee brace on there, and he's certainly at this time becoming the Ahmed Johnson of knee braces. Where uh, Ahmed used to have like the six knee pads all the way up his legs, Austin was really more knee brace than man <laughs> at a certain point. Angle hits a belly-to-belly suplex on Austin. And Regal and The Rock are outside the ring, and they are battling. And Regal gets tossed in the ring by The Rock, which is one of those, hmm, why would The Rock do that? Because he doesn't come in after him. But Austin then fires up again, and The Rock does make his way in, and they face off at center again. So you get that nice visual of The Rock and Austin kind of just center of the ring, looking at each other like, what were you about to do? What were you about to do? You want to try me? None of this pointing at a WrestleMania sign. None of that was necessary here. I mean, yeah, you would need Limp Biscuit songs, apparently, later on for their sit-down interviews. But as I remember, and I should continue watching 2001 WWF on the network because I've been fascinated in, in my viewing. Just 
the way they would do those sit-down interviews, it, it was one of the best WrestleMania builds that they ever did. And the match itself was truly great until the very end, which you can explain the whole chair thing with Austin as him becoming a desperate man. And I think a very subtle thing in Austin's character is that he comes back after being away for a year with a neck injury. And yes, he still feels like a badass. I don't know why I'm psychologically evaluating Austin here, but this is kind of the way I look at it and perhaps even justify the ill-advised heel turn. It's that he sees himself still as a badass, but he knows that he's going to need a little bit of help. He can't do it on his own anymore because he doesn't trust that he's going to be healthy enough going forward. And of course, he turned out to be 100% correct because Booker T injures him at the King of the Ring with that run-in, and he misses some time there. And you go another year down the road from that, he's walked out on the company, and he's just in a very, very bad place. So if you just examine the Stone Cold character from a psychological perspective, what he does in terms of turning heel, I guess you could make the case that it made sense. However, what makes sense isn't always the best thing for business, as we found out. Entertainment. More than a game. The XFL this weekend. In case you may have forgotten in the XFL from that season, and I'm sure you have because so much of it was forgettable, because I certainly didn't remember this and I actually watched because I was invested in an XFL fantasy league that I did end up winning. So (laughs) at this time, During the season, they were setting up a feud between Jesse Ventura and the coach of the New York, New Jersey Hitmen, where the the Hitmen had taken a lead of 10 to nothing over Chicago the week before, and Ventura was making fun of them, saying, well, if there's any coach who can blow this lead, it's whatever the guy's name was. I mean, it's not even worth writing down. And then they would ask him for comment, the coach, after the game. And he'd be like, well, he can say whatever he wants to say, whatever. It's like, okay. So they're trying to set up feuds between the broadcasters and the head coaches in this league. I was like, way to do it so that people will take you seriously. Things were getting bad enough at week five of the XFL season, which is where they were at this point in time. Uh, Let me just run down some of the scores from week five of the XFL. On March 3rd, 2001, same day as this show aired, Los Angeles Extreme 22, New York, New Jersey Hitmen 7. So New York, New Jersey dropped to 1-4 and on the season with that loss. And the San Francisco Demons defeated the Birmingham Bolts. 39-10. to The Bolts were the worst team in the XFL, finishing with a record of 2-8, and outscored by over 100 points on the season. So I think that when, if and when the XFL starts up again, because now with this new Charlie Ebersol league that's going to be starting a year ahead, who knows if it's ever going to come to fruition. Birmingham should have the first pick in that draft, and I can't even imagine who would make themselves eligible for it. And San Francisco's 39 points in that game was the most points scored by an XFL team in any game in the regular season that year. 
Just reminded that the XFL did not kick extra points either, so that might have kept scoring down slightly as well. San Francisco would be the runner-up in the XFL lot, losing that million-dollar game at the end, or whatever the hell they ended up calling it, to Los Angeles by a score of 38-6. to So back to wrestling. Our final bout here is Christian taking on Grandmaster Sex A, so it's a battle of Christian versus Christopher, Brian Christopher. And Christian here is wearing what looks to be a replica of Allison Janney's glasses from the movie I, Tanya, except two times as big as like the kind of like the gigantic frames, like the 1980s uh, old woman or mom glasses or whatever. It, it I would do a screen cap of it. However, this video was pulled from YouTube during this week, so I can't grab any more screen caps from this show. So my show image is just going to have to go off what I have, and I was planning to use Christian wearing the giant sunglasses as one of them. I could probably pull it from somewhere else if I really wanted to. A Grandmaster Sexe is very much like the Yeti, in that you you add the A sound to the end of something back in those days to make it sound a little bit cooler. And he is a grandmaster, apparently. I don't know where he went. I think he went to the same place as David Faustino from Married With Children went to become Grandmaster B. I don't think he's on the same level as Grandmaster Flash because I don't, I don't think he got the message on how to be a proper grandmaster this is just another chapter in the storied rivalry between memphis and canada and you might laugh they say what the hell do memphis and canada like a, a guy christian from canada brian christopher one of the bigger names at the end of the memphis territory well just think about this bret hart versus jerry lawler one of the bigger wwf feuds of the 1990s that went on for over two years. That's Canada versus Memphis. You have all the involvement in the USWA with the hearts coming in and causing trouble. How about this? How about the Memphis Mad Dogs of the CFL? Yes, Memphis for one year fielded a CFL team during the short-lived American invasion of the CFL, which did prove successful because Baltimore CFL, which was actually their team name because they couldn't get permission to use Colts, Baltimore CFL won the Grey Cup one year, which is kind of a stain on that trophy, I think, for CFL fans, knowing that an American team won it, won it one time. Although, it's not as bad as the year that the Stanley Cup didn't get awarded because they had a lockout and it canceled the whole season. And then they decided to actually put 2004-2005 no season on the Stanley Cup, but whatever. And then another thing between Memphis and Canada is the Vancouver Grizzlies as they were founded in 1995 moving to Memphis around this time period I want to say it was either 2000 or 2001 so Memphis stole one of the two NBA teams in Canada you could say well nobody cared about the Grizzlies but the Grizzlies in Vancouver were not really given much of a chance to succeed because of the rules 
when uh, for the expansion teams that came in in 95 I don't I think they weren't allowed to have a top three pick for the first like four years they were in the league I mean think about think about that think about Philadelphia and what they've done the last five or six years trying to operate in an environment let's say where they're not even allowed to get a top three pick the, the process doesn't even work in that case so the gimmick for Grandmaster Sexe was pretty over in 2000. It was fun, something that I appreciate more now, the silliness, the dancing, stuff like that. The Royal Rumble, where they just kind of kept stopping and dancing at kind of the, what I like to call the end of the first act break of that Royal Rumble, where it was just too cool in the ring, and then they would eliminate a guy, and then they would go back to dancing and that sort of thing. But Brian Christopher certainly qualifies i think as an own worst enemy guy i don't really like to you know lay out all the lurid details of what of whatever problems a guy must had but he had some personal demons that kept him maybe from reaching his full potential i think as for christian when i see him and he had a comeback as recently as 2014 in wwe that ended because of a concussion unfortunately I thought he was pretty good in that run it was leading I guess to a match with Sheamus at Wrestlemania 30 which to my mind is a very good Wrestlemania and it would have been even better if there was a Christian versus Sheamus match on there as well but when I see him all I can picture is that blue dot story that came out a couple of years ago that as the story goes Vince McMahon clearly a normal man of sound mind who is not at all crazy in any way was so annoyed by christian's face that he wanted to put a blue dot over it kind of like a whistleblower testifying on 60 minutes or something that oh i don't want to be identified so they were going to put a blue dot over christian's face at all times (laughs) i don't know when the time frame on this would have been But it was a well-known story that came out about three, four years ago that they wanted to do this. And it's funny to me because you look at Edge and Christian, who forever linked in my mind, Edge's face is way more annoying than Christian's, in my opinion. I mean, Edge has that Ricky Schroeder, like, carved out of granite thing, but not, like, chiseled good looks, in my opinion. It's more like... Like, does it have to be so jagged and stuff? I mean, that's why he's Edge, I guess, because he's got, like, jagged features and stuff like that. I don't know. That that is the most ridiculous thing, that blue dot story. And on the message board that I was posting on at that time, when that story came out, somebody immediately changed their name to Blue Dot and just made their avatar Christian with a blue dot over the face. Anytime that person would post, it would really make me laugh. So to the match here... Sex A ducks a crossbody very early on, and Christian is out on the floor. And Sex A takes the time to preen and dance in the ring. I think it's a little bit of it is lost without Scotty Too Hotty around, and particularly Rikishi, who is long gone. He had done stuff for The Rock, as we know, and he's teaming with Haku at this point in 2001, which, as I said, I wish Haku was my friend. So that's what I would have done in that case. Atomic Drop by Grandmaster Sex A, and I'm just happy to see an Atomic Drop being done in 2001. I'm talking old school, Bob Backlund style, 
And then he does a very 1980s thing where he mocks the selling of it. I'm like, wow, this might turn into a Rick Rude, Ricky Steamboat match here. This is some old school stuff. But this is WWF Metal from 2001. It's not going to turn into Rude Steamboat from 92 or anything like that. A drop kick off the ropes gets two. And Sex A ends up going shoulder first. He gets thrown shoulder first into the post. Uh, I don't know what to call that. Maybe the Warlord Memorial posting or something like that. I, I don't know. Christian sucks chant from the crowd. And it made me wonder, like, oh, yeah, these guys were heels, I guess, nominally at this time. I don't really think of the babyface heel structure of the tag team scene at that time because the you know the Dudleys always kind of struck me as tweeners with the stuff they would do but they were kind of baby faces the Hardys were also baby faces as well so when you have that three-way TLC thing that they did several different times including at Wrestlemania 17 you've got to have at least one heel in there and it's interesting how Edge and Christian would end up winning every single one of those matches the baby face groups would never actually win those matches by the way the mesh shirt of christian i'm I'm not i'm not a fan of of those mesh shirts i don't think that's really a good look for him and his gear up top with a superplex try but sex a fights out of it and gets a bulldog out of it off the top christian catches the foot of sex a and we get an enziguri so he gets the other foot and Christopher goes up for the 10 punches on the corner mount. And this is very interesting. I thought that this was actually a pretty good finish for a TV match of this type. In the middle of the 10, Christian ends up just kind of putting him down. Not, not quite, He could have done like an inverted atomic drop, but instead he just kind of almost like a light spine buster. And then he goes for the Ric Flair memorial finish where his feet are on the ropes for the pinfall. Oh, wait. The Ric Flair Memorial finish? He's not fucking dead. Well, neither is the Warlord, but, you know, he's actually still doing shots. I saw a picture of him on Twitter in a ring at some independent show. Yeah, of course, we're all, we're all glad Ric Flair's doing. Okay, so Christian emerges victorious in that one, and they go to what passes for the event center in 2001 with Coach again in his XFL shirt that has to be a collector's item or something that they're just going to pull out of the archives and make <laughs> Coach, I guess, again, wear on Raw or whatever. You get more Rock Austin. Still no Limp Biscuit. We haven't gotten the rights to the song yet and we get some words from the rock who kind of walks away at the end showing off the world title belt that he held i actually liked the 2001 world title they had the kind of big circle with kind of the the thing that always stood out to me was the blue ocean on the globe uh, I I don't know if I liked it more than say the Hogan 86 87 belts which I always preferred to the winged eagle that everybody else seems to love but that's just a matter of subjective cha- taste. You get a promo for the Rock's recording debut on WWF The Music Volume 5 and I am particularly interested with one of the things that they're offering with this. Let The Rock tell you a little story about pie. It's The Rock's solo recording debut, and he's got something to say about his favorite dish, pie. It's tough to 
Fill your plate with the new WWF release, WWF The Music Volume 5. 14 brand new tracks, including some of your favorite WWF superstars' entrance theme songs. It's WWF The Music Volume 5, an enhanced CD containing The Rock's custom internet browser. Available wherever music is sold. All right, this is something I need to know more about. The Rock and his custom internet browser. Oh, fuck Internet Explorer 5.6. Fuck Netscape 6.0. Fuck Infant Mozilla or whatever it was at the time. It probably wasn't Firefox then. I don't even think they were even up to version 1.0 according to the timelines that I've seen. The Rock's Internet browser that I could find literally no info on. So if you have any experiences with The Rock and his internet browser, please contact me on Twitter, Facebook, or on email at greetingsfromalatout at gmail.com. That is something I don't remember. And this is really just more for plugging various, I don't know, entertainment vehicles for various WWF superstars. They go into China's book, which was number two on the bestseller list at this time during a period when wrestling books were extremely hot, starting with the Mick Foley book a couple of years before, which I, I had a copy of, and I wish I could still find. It's probably in the attic at my mother's house. So maybe maybe the next time I stop over there, I'll just take a trip upstairs and see if I can find it. I mean, I found a lot of my LJN figures up there, so maybe I can liberate Mick Foley's book as well. China's book, If They Only Knew, is to not be confused with the song from Piledriver, If You Only Knew. Look in my eyes! You'll be on your back! I'm flat! Hit by Cadillac! You only know! Hey dude, you ain't got enough money to buy me out! Yeah, everybody's got a price! Oh, I'd like to bust you up real, real bad! Yeah, see Virgil! If you only knew! I never read that China book. I really have no desire to go back. And besides, a China book that came out in late 2000, early 2001 might be hopelessly out of date considering some of the stuff that did happen to her afterwards. And they end the show by really promoting Sunday Night Heat. They, As I said, they really cared about this show. They have three title matches on Heat. No mention of the light heavyweight title match between Dean Malenko and Shofunaki that would air on that show, but the Intercontinental title is on the line. Chris Jericho defending against Saturn and Test taking on Raven, defending the European title. And apparently Kid Quick, or K-Quick, is going to be hosting that episode of Sunday Night Heat. So another guy who still is around today, now of course known as R-Truth. And they wrap up by panning the crowd at the arena in Phoenix. And <laughs> there are so many goddamn signs in that crowd. And as I said, that's not something that I miss about that era. But I, I think I have a manner of explanation for why you would have a ton of signs at that time and really not many now that goes beyond, you know, it falling out of fashion. So back then, you didn't have Facebook. You didn't have Twitter where... Any obnoxious a-hole in the crowd at a wrestling event could tweet out to the world their feelings on Roman Reigns or whoever. Back then, you had to express yourself through sign at a wrestling event. That was the only way to do it, and it was probably the most effective means of communication for many. So that's why you would see 17,000 damn signs at every WWF show. And as they pan over the crowd, that's how they rap for WWF metal for March 3rd, 2001. 
And that's where I'm going to wrap it because in terms of the this day in history, because there's no YouTube comments, it was disabled by the uploader anyway. And now that it's gone, I wouldn't have been able to read comments if there were any in the first place. So that segment is out. The segment of this day in history is a little bland because the only thing that I could find that happened on that day, with it being a Saturday, not so much going on in the news, there was a military plane crash in the state of Georgia on that day, the U.S. state of Georgia, not the former Soviet Republic. So not a whole lot of good news there. So I'm really just kind of kind of cut it off. I've been trying to figure out ways to make my show a little bit shorter. So uh, this might be a good place to start. I do have other podcasts coming up where I'll be making other appearances. Uh, just stay tuned to social media, both Facebook and Twitter. I'll be plugging them on there. Perhaps a WrestleMania special coming up, trying to schedule that out with Steve Bennett. In the similar vein to the GWWE podcast we did a little while ago, hopefully it won't take a couple of months to come out. I don't think we'll be releasing a WrestleMania podcast in late May or anything like that. So do stay tuned. Perhaps I'll be on Breaking Balls very soon for their MLB preview that is penciled in to record, I believe, this weekend. So I have some homework to do on MLB. And I do have to set up my MLB wins pool ASAP because the, the damn season is starting about a week from now. So I have to get myself ready for that. Now, as for next week's show here, I had mentioned about a WrestleMania kind of grouping of shows that I want to do from shows that are leading up to a particular WrestleMania and I have one for next week from March 10th, 1990, an episode of Superstars. But there is a lot going on. And we actually have a Hulk Hogan match that leads to an angle and an interaction with the Ultimate Warrior. It's Hulk Hogan versus Dino Bravo. So buckle your seatbelts, everybody, because that one's going to be nonstop action with, with Ranas and suicide dives and stuff like that. Save me your Dino Bravo shooter jokes, all right? I, I don't... I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any jokes about that, okay? So that's next week. There's stuff going on underneath as well with the Warlord and the Barbarian, so I get to talk about the Warlord again, <laughs> I guess. So that should be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes, not only for me, but for the Pro Wrestling feed as well. Do check out all the other great shows on Place to Be Nation and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. What the rock? Oh my gosh! It's cooking!